0: Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Today we have another in my continuing irregular series, Sentencing Commission Confidential. The question today is what does the Sentencing Commission data tell us about ethics and compliance programs. The Sentencing Commission, beyond being the source for the seven hallmarks of an effective ethics and compliance program that are enshrined in the organizational sentencing guidelines, also has a couple other functions that I think are of interest and are worthwhile to explore for compliance officers. One being the vast amount of data that the Sentencing Commission collects year after year. For many folks in the compliance field, the number one source of information about uh, compliance gone wrong, if you will, other than issues that happen within your own organization, is to read the news reports and follow the ins and outs of any current corporate scandal. While this anecdotal evidence can be helpful, particularly if you're putting together scenarios or training materials using those scenarios rip, sort of ripped from the headlines, that can very easily be modified and create some interest when you're doing communication and training work. But beyond that, the, the actual data that you can garner from the newspaper and media reports around these sorts of failures is not always that all that helpful. It's all said and done. You may have a figure, of, you know, however, however many millions and millions of fine that the company has agreed to pay, whether there's perhaps a some executive or some other employee of the organization or or several employees that have either been let go or disciplined or, God forbid, find themselves uh, sentenced in federal court. Those things are all there for, for you to review in the media, but it's kind of ad hoc. So what I would suggest is it's worthwhile, particularly if you're putting together materials for training or educating internally about the ramifications of a compliance failure to take a close look at the sentencing data that the Sentencing Commission collects. There's a lot of really helpful things there, and I wanted to talk about that just for a few minutes. When I first uh, went to the Sentencing Commission in 2007, I was really not aware at all about the whole data gathering and reporting function that the commission provides to the American public and to, to the federal government. It's really sort of unknown outside of uh, Congress, to be quite honest. Congress gets regular reports from the commission about, uh, about the impact of sentencing on individuals and organizations. There is an annual source book that the commission puts out. It's on their website at USSC. Gov. The sourcebook has lots of facts and figures about the individuals that get sentenced in federal court every year. There are give or take seventy to 75,000 actual humans that find themselves in front of a federal judge being sentenced every year. But there's also a section for organizational cases in each sourcebook. And periodically, the commission also releases other data around organizational cases organizational cases are not nearly as prevalent as individual cases. There are on average between a low of say 150 to a high of like 220 cases a year that usually happen. Not a lot of activity compared to the number of individual cases that happen every year. One of the things that you will find if you take a look at the data is the surprising number of very small organizations that end up taking a felony conviction in federal court. Perhaps this is no surprise, but it uh, I, I find that oftentimes small and medium-sized organizations, and they can be forgiven for this too, have the impression from watching the media that it's primarily the big guys, it's the Wells Fargos, it's the VWs of the world who find themselves uh, with compliance issues that that make the headlines, so to speak. But If that's the case, if it's the big guys that make the news, it's the small guys that take the real hit. For FY 2015, which is the last year of full data, 69.9 or 70% of organizations that ended up with a felony conviction in federal court for a federal crime had less than 50 employees. If you include organizations all the way up to 500 employees, the percentage is actually 87%. There's just 10% of the organizations that get sentenced on an annual basis in federal court have more than 1,000 employees. So this situation, finding your organization in front of a federal judge facing a probationary period, facing perhaps having a monitor uh, appointed to oversee your compliance and ethics program, facing other sanctions and mitigation penalties, that's primarily something that a medium and small size organization faces. Again, that, I think, may be a surprise, and certainly a forgivable surprise, to individuals who pay close attention to the failures and the issues that are played out in the news media because they very rarely talk about small organizations. A second aha moment you might have if you're looking through the data is related to an issue that I've explored before in another podcast about having too much focus on what might be the hot issue of the moment, but not really closely monitoring your actual risks. When you look at the types of cases, the types of charges that are brought against the organizations that end up being sentenced in federal court year-in, year-out. It doesn't include a lot of risk topics that we commonly spend a lot of time talking about in the compliance space. Things like anti-corruption or FCPA specifically when we're talking about the United States. Organizations who had as a primary offense bribery make up less than 1% of the cases from the last full year we have FY 2015. The large categories include environmental offenses and fraud offenses—more about that in a second—FDA, food and drug offenses, and uh, offenses like money laundering, antitrust, import-export, and immigration offenses, which is, again, probably something that doesn't leap to mind. But there are 5% of those 200-odd organizations in 2015 that were facing primarily charges under the immigration laws of the United States. And when we talk about fraud, perhaps not surprisingly, the large chunk of that is healthcare fraud. But a big chunk of it is mail and wire fraud, 27%, that's the largest group. And a lot of that is just garden variety fraud. I think that to a great extent, the recent Wells Fargo case was helpful for us to refocus in this respect, because the fraud involved in the Wells Fargo case, and although it hasn't become a criminal case yet, That fraud was very straightforward garden-variety fraud. They were just creating false accounts. And that is the largest chunk of what organizations convicted of a fraud offense in the United States face as well. Just garden-variety fraud, making false statements, is the other large segment of this category. False claims makes up about 5.5% of that overall fraud section. The whole point of this is to just take a moment to kind of focus on what organizations actually get charged with. And it's not to read the tea leaves and and start preparing for false statements or mail and wire fraud cases. No, it, it just is a wake up call that you have to really focus on the risks that you face based on your own internal risk assessment, but also to pay close attention to something like culture. You know what this data tells me is you're not going to be able to predict necessarily where the case might be coming from or what Law or policy or procedure within your organization will be the area where the issue arises from. You can do some predicting, and you have some ability to assess that risk based on past experience and on the risks that pure organizations are facing. So it's not a completely a black box. But ultimately, there are going to be some blind spots that you're just not going to see. And the cure for that is to have the sort of culture where individuals who aren't sure about a situation or need to ask a question or need to report something are comfortable coming forward and making those recommendations or making those reports. One last area that I would point out to you from the sentencing commission data and this is not something that's in the source file this is something that the commission regularly reports on publicly but but you won't be able to find on their website and this is the relationship of individual cases, individual humans, (laughs) to organizational cases. And if you look at the last two years, both uh, 2014 and 2015, it's pretty consistent that in 58% of the cases, there was at least one human that also was charged with for the same conduct. So in almost 60% of, of these organizational cases that actually lead to a felony conviction for the organization, there's an individual, uh, at least one, sometimes more than one, that is also facing charges. And I think that's uh, important in this post-Yates Memo world where the focus on individual liability has been topic of conversation, to say the least, over the last year. It's important to note that even before the Yates Memo came out, a similar percentage of individuals were finding themselves standing next to, if you will, the corporate defendant in a federal courtroom. It'll be interesting to see in the sentencing commission data from 2016 and onwards if we see a change in that uh, trend, if there's now more, you know, maybe closer to 70% instead of 60% of cases have individuals as well as organizations charged. I don't know whether we'll see that or not, but it's it's worth kind of comparing those notes as we go forward to get a, a broad sense of, of perhaps the impact of the Yates memorandum. Another interesting of the puzzle when you look at the individuals that are charged along with the organization, 50% of them are not high level or or perceived to be high level officials. So about half are individuals that were in a more operational role. About 20%, 19.8% are owners of those organizations. About 21% are board members, so again, board liability is something to consider in these situations, and about 10% were managers or supervisors, 9% to be exact. So for smaller to medium-sized organizations, I think that these data points are of particular interest. You can show your stakeholders internally that the most significant downside, which is taking a federal conviction, is something that is, seems to be almost exclusively reserved for smaller organizations and medium-sized organizations, and that you're more in the uh, crosshairs for this sort of situation than a larger organization. The other takeaway, too, is that the risks that lead to these charges are not necessarily the risks that we spend a lot of time talking about in the compliance field or that they're as board members or as as executives are hearing a lot about we hear a lot about uh, fcpa and anti-corruption still and it's still a very very important risk and i don't mean to downplay that at all but it's not what we're seeing in the data for organizations that take the most severe penalty and then lastly Uh, and this ought to speak to those individuals very clearly, that well over half of these cases end up with an individual also facing a penalty. And at least 50% of that time, an individual is usually a high level official, including over 20% of the time, a board member. That ought to open some eyes and get some people to listen about the importance of having an effective program and trying to avoid these problems. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on ComplianceBeat.com. Now, here's the upshot. The upshot this time is the U.S. Sentencing Commission's data can tell us some very interesting and helpful things about the size of organizations that get in trouble, the types of offenses, or actually the multiplicity of offenses that organizations find themselves charged with, And probably most importantly, we can talk very specifically about the collateral damage, if you will, that comes with a federal prosecution in the form of individuals that get prosecuted. These are all helpful pieces of information when you're making the case internally for the necessity of compliance. Today, we have three questions with Amy Lilly. Amy is the Director of Corporate Ethics and Compliance at Centerpoint Energy in Houston, Texas, where her role is to integrate values-based ethics into a compliance-based company. She oversees the Concerns Helpline and enhances the awareness and effectiveness of CenterPoint's ethical culture through creative initiatives that include, among other things, video contests, roundtable discussions, the annual Code of Conduct training, newsletters, and the annual Conflicts of Interest Questionnaire. Amy has over 20 years of experience working in human resources for the Friedkin Companies, General Electric, and Toshiba International Corporation. She has a master's degree in Business Administration from Houston Baptist University. And her undergraduate degree is from the Pennsylvania State University. Amy is also the president of Gerber Greater Houston Business Ethics Roundtable, a wonderful peer organization of compliance professionals in the Houston area. Check them out if you haven't already. Welcome Amy.
1: Well thank you. I appreciate being here Eric.
0: Can you talk about your career journey for us? How did you end up in your current role?
1: Well the majority of my career has been in human resources. And I think like so many of the individuals who have been practicing ethics and compliance for many years, we get into the profession because it is an add-on to whatever current responsibilities that we had. So being in human resources, the Friedkin companies wanted to specialize and get involved in the ethics and compliance world. So as the HR director there, I was given the opportunity to also take on the ethics and compliance for the Friedkin company. So I was doing 50% human resources and 50% starting their ethics and compliance program. And I think as far as my background, being in HR, it has really helped me as far as utilizing my past skills in human resources like I am using them here at CenterPoint Energy. And the reason why I went to CenterPoint Energy is because they offered a full-time position in ethics and compliance, and that's really where my passion is, that I wanted to focus on ethics and compliance. The skills that I've learned in HR are very much used here in the ethics and compliance field, such as investigations, the training, the collaboration. In human resources, you're dealing with the whole gambit as far as leadership to the field people. So it gives you a good understanding of corporate culture. You know who the ethical leaders are, and you know how to provide them the guidance and make an impact on the decisions that they make. So That's a little bit about my HR background.
0: Now, if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self uh, before you took on the role as Director of Compliance and Ethics at CenterPoint, if you had one thing to say, what would that one thing be?
1: I think as I look back in my younger career, I really do wish I would have gotten a law degree. At this point, I'm seeing so many of the CECOs, the compliance officers, have come through the legal aspect of the community. And I think as far as the ethics and compliance field, there is so much more emphasis placed on government regulations. And I think that that is something that, if anyone getting into the field, I think that's a, a viable uh, degree to consider in order to be able to keep ethics front of mind and with their legal background.
0: Thanks. Many of us lawyers out there are saying no, don't do it. <laughs> but it's I think that's that's uh, clearly something that you see very commonly. Right. Now, last question. If you can peer into your ethics and compliance crystal ball for us for a moment, what one or two trends do you see that you think are going to be important over the next few years for compliance and ethics professionals?
1: My whole emphasis has always been maintaining awareness of an ethical culture and training employees. So I think that if I can train employees seamlessly, that I think companies with mature, ethics and compliance programs, they get training fatigue. And with a new generation of employees coming on, the training has got to be pertinent, individualized. And I think that one of the things that I've seen in this past year, I started an ethics video contest and, and realized at CenterPoint, 40% of our employment Are people out in the field, they don't use computers on a day-to-day basis. So when I announced the Ethics in Action video contest, I wasn't sure if we would get many entries. But for the first year, we received 20 entries from various areas in our company. And the feedback that I've received is that the individuals were so excited to create a video And it was a very collaborative effort with teams that here I have employees who are spending hours making videos, collaborating with their other team members. I mean, that's truly what an ethical culture is about. We want people to be talking about value. And here they produced this video. They loved it. They had a great time. And I'm thinking, yes, that is where I've hit it in terms of creating the awareness, and people were learning without realizing that they were sitting in front of a, rather than sit in front of a computer watching a one-hour code of conduct training. So I think that training, the next future training should be seamless. People are getting trained without realizing it.
0: No, and that sounds like a great win.
1: Yes, it was. And I can tell you the another area that I think is very, very good for us at this point, because ethics and compliance, we're still a developing field. The collaboration that I am having with our enterprise risk management group is huge. Right now, as ethics and compliance professionals, there's always that term, do you have a seat at the table? And right now, with ethics and compliance, we're collaborating with our audit group and our enterprise risk management. So we're involved in all of the workshops when our leaderships are discussing the major risks of the company. So that ethics and compliance is right there, identifying the risks, the ethical risks and, and our involvement with the corporate risks so that it comes top of mind all the time when the company is then developed, after we've established what our risks are, then it goes into our strategic planning. So that we are incorporating the ethical risks into the enterprise risks and which then is flowed into our strategic plan. So we couldn't get more involved in our operation of the company as by being collaborative with audit and the ERM process. And I think as more companies are becoming so risk aware, this is the way for an ethics and compliance department to be able to get their foot in the door, get that seat at the table and earn your way so that you understand what's going on in the rest of your business. So those two and areas it, is, it are just very becomes important.
0: accepted that you're gonna be there. That, yeah. I think that's that's great.
1: Mm-hmm. Well
0: Amy, I can't thank you enough for giving us a few minutes of your time and answering our three questions today.
1: Well, I enjoyed it. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and explain a little bit more about what I do and what I'm thinking and how we can definitely increase the uh, ethics and compliance field. So I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Morehead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moreheadconsulting.com.